You know, right after a you know, nice morning session and a good lunch, beautiful day, wouldn't it be great just to open up the windows, lay back in our lazy boy, and just watch a good movie? But we're not. I want to talk about the impact of prophecy um, in a way that we often, as New Testament believers, we often don't recognize. Um, when God speaks, he doesn't speak just to make us happy, although he loves when his kids are happy. He doesn't speak just so we feel fulfilled and loved, although he wants us fulfilled and he wants us to experience his love. There's a, a certain power in, in God's words that they don't just bring... Um, information. They bring transformation. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Genesis, in the beginning, the earth was formless and void. You know, it was chaotic and empty and sort of crazy. And God's response to that was, and then, and then God said. And those words brought order. Those words brought fruitfulness where there had been chaos uh, where there had been emptiness, right? So there's a creative, transformative power when God speaks. In other words, God's words are intended to bring about life-giving, kingdom-advancing change. Um, many times, though, we think that the word repentance means God's saying, man, it stinks being you. You're not good enough. Here's a word that if you just embrace this word and do what I tell you, you'll be happier, and so will I. But repentance really doesn't require anger. It doesn't presuppose an angry God. As a matter of fact, I mean, if you've raised children, you love them, you correct them and all, yes, to change their behavior, but ultimately, hopefully, that they start thinking differently, and they frame their life differently. So I want to talk. I want to talk about um, the power of God's words to actually bring about repentance. Um, now, here's the thing: that why does God want us to repent, to think differently, to have heart attitudes in our minds? You know, it's so that we we can experience the kingdom of God advancing in us, but ultimately, it's so that the kingdom of God will advance through us. There is a real connection. Whatever God wants to do through us, he's almost always going to do first in us. So repentance brings about change in our life, but that change will have an overflow. It will impact other people's lives. So, so when God speaks to bring about change, it's not just that we experience more of the kingdom of God and God's plan for our lives uh, in, in our own personal lives. God is actually doing those things for two reasons. He loves us, but he also wants to equip us to advance the kingdom in our spheres of influence. So that's my overall thesis. Now, now I'll start. Here's a challenge. Um, the one of the biggest challenges for the church is for the church to actually realize 
what its primary mission is. Now, there are many things God has called the church to do and to be. Many things. All of them are biblical and they're good. But I'm of the mind, I humbly submit this, that the primary reason for the existence of the church is to demonstrate and advance the kingdom of God. To be an example of what kingdom of living can look like individually and as a church family, but also to advance the kingdom of God. There's a couple of scriptures that I think are, to me, most instructive. In Matthew 16, you know that time where Jesus was saying, what do the people uh, say that I am? And all the answers were wrong. And then, uh, then he looks at Peter and goes, okay, who do you say that I am? And he goes, well, you're the Christ. You're the guy. Um, you're the Savior. You're the guy. And Jesus says, you didn't get that because you were so smart. You didn't get that because you're steeped in Judaism. You didn't get that. You got that because it was revealed to you. The, the Holy Spirit yeah, just made it real. The Spirit of the Father just made things real. And because you know that, you know, that's a good thing. And then Jesus says something absolutely amazing. He goes, on that rock, not Peter, <laughs> but on the revelation, the supernatural revelation, of the person and work of Jesus. He will build his church. He will strengthen his church through the ongoing revelation of who Jesus really is. Um, the Holy Spirit makes Jesus real to us and in us in so many ways. Now, if we just stop there, that would be a pretty good day at the office. Wow. Jesus is making himself real to me. My life has changed and all that. But Jesus does not stop there. What he says is, on this rock I will build my church. I will strengthen my church family. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is a new dimension. This is above and beyond just learning how to live strong, holy, fruitful Christian lives. That Actually, Jesus says something rather radical. The evidence of a church family that is being strengthened by God, is that the kingdom of God will advance out of it. And the, the kingdom of darkness, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. Notice God doesn't say, um, there'll be no resistance. There are gates of hell. There are places where the kingdom of God is not yet real. In, in people, in, in certain areas of the city, for example. <laughs> Jesus' uh, uh, promise is, as a church family is genuinely experiencing Jesus, as they follow Jesus, the evidence is that it'll be little by little moving out, there will be resistance, there will be battles, but we can go forth with the assurance that even though we'll get dinged, even though there will be uh, resistance, there will be prices to pay, we'll win. Isn't that an interesting thought? So <laughs> this, is, this is how Jesus characterizes the church. I'm going to strengthen my church family. I love them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to you know, create them to be all they're called to be. But I'm going to strengthen them so that eventually the kingdom of God will be advanced through their lives. And Matthew 28, you know, the Great Commission. Jesus, because he owns the church, he says, um, all right, I want you to go. Go where? I'm not telling. But basically... In your going, in your going, 
go make disciples. In your going. So this is a, another example of the basic arrow of our life. As Christians, of course, it's, it's Godward. But the basic arrow of our life is outward. That in our going, whether it's home, in our community, at business, going shopping, there's a, a basic attitude to, to demonstrate and to bring the kingdom of God wherever we set our foot with the idea that maybe we can connect with someone. Maybe God can use touch someone, bring them into the kingdom family, equip them so they can do the same thing. So that's, that's the primary mission. Now listen, that doesn't mean that's, that's the only thing the church is supposed to do. I, I've seen churches where they go, we don't do anything but the Great Commission. Mm, you're missing out on fellowship. You know, you're missing out on the experience of a kicking good service. You know, when everybody gets together in the presence of God, you're missing out on that. And, you know, eating together, my gosh. You know, at Pentecost, they pour the Holy Spirit, people are added to the church, and one of the evidences of revival is that they ate together. So to me, that, by the way, is a charismatic joke. (laughs) Anyway, but there's something about, with all the things that we do, keeping in mind the primary mission, not to the exclusion of all the other important things. The primary reason we're here is to be strengthened by God, to let the kingdom of God advance in us so that the kingdom of God can advance through us. That's the, that I'm submitting. That's our primary reason for doing it, being here. Now, the church does not exist without a context. It, you know, the gates, there are gates of hell. The church exists in the world. It exists in a system of values, of ways of doing things which are utterly incompatible with the kingdom of God. We live in a world that is broken. But when you live in a broken world, you don't think it's broken. It's the only world you know. So that we live in a broken world. Another way of putting this is we live in an idolatrous culture. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily statues, but we live in a world, a world system, where we, where people worship anything and everything other than Jesus. And those things that, that compete with Jesus or overshadow Jesus or replace Jesus those things are idols. So the, the church exists within a world system with, where, where brokenness is assumed, brokenness is sometimes even glorified, and it's within the context of idolatry. Okay? So how do we fulfill our mission? Think about this. Our mission is to have the kingdom of God advance in us and through us, and it's going to be done within a context, um, a culture that is fundamentally ignorant of God and hostile to God. Fulfilling our mission is a challenge. Um, The person, the word, the work, and will of Jesus may offend, it may challenge, and it may even displace many of our culture's values and, uh, and um, idols. I mean, just how should we do relationships? There's God's ways, 
And then there's the world's ways, okay? How to, you know, there's so many things where there really is not a bridge between God's ways and the ways of the world system. And so when we start just not beating people over the head with the Bible and you know, saying, well, we're Christians, we're better than you, but when we start actually living a Christian life, we're, go- we're going to offend. There will be resistance. Right? I think it's in Timothy which says anybody who just wants to live a go- godly life, they'll be persecuted. You don't even have to be good at it. You don't have to be good at living a godly life. Just, just having the wanna will put you in a position where you'll get dinged by the forces of darkness. So, two questions. Here's the first one. How does God want to equip his church for this challenge? I'll say that again. It's a, you know, we have a church, we have a mission, a primary mission, and then we have the context, which is hostile. So God just doesn't throw the church out there and say, hey, bless you, hope you win. How does God want to equip his church for this challenge? Let me reformulate that question with a second question, a little more fine-grained. What kind of church does God want to grow within an idolatrous culture? What kind of church? I see two possibilities. There's probably more than that, but since I'm speaking, I decided just to have two. Um, here's one kind. You can find this in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33 and following. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. A little further down, even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. Now notice, God is not saying they weren't really worshiping the Lord. He said, they were worshiping the Lord, they had a heart for the Lord, they loved the Lord, and they were serving the idols of their culture. That's one kind of church. Here's another kind. And this can be found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 9. This is Paul speaking to the Thessalonican church. He says, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. I don't know if I did that right. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and and Acacia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. That's interesting. That the reputation of this church was not that they had great services, although I'm sure they had that. Wow, the message rang out. They were known as that church. That message rang out from it. And, and that these people, they have faith in God, and everybody knows that that church, they, they believe in God. Whether or not they believe in God or not, um, you know, whether or not people actually believe there is a God, they know those people actually believe in God. They had the reputation as God believers. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they, the world, the people on the outside, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
There's a reputation, and not that they're perfect, that they've repented of everything, but there was a disposition. There was a default in that church that said, look, we turn, we, we turn for, from the things that would compete with God. We turn from them, and we turn not just to the idea of God or the concept of God or, or, or just the, the, the pleasurable idea of Jesus, but they actually turn to the living God. They had that reputation. I believe God wants to equip all churches to grow into that second kind. Now, this is not a, a way of dinging the church, and, oh, you're just a bunch of idol. Look, we were, we were born and raised in our idolatrous culture. As a matter of fact, before we got saved, no matter how cool you thought you were, you were an idolater. You worshipped something. You probably just worshipped yourself. So we, we were raised in that culture, then the Spirit of God came in, and the rest of our life is going to be God getting rid of the old and bringing in the new. God wants to produce a church that keeps on turning from the old things to embrace the new things that God has and do it in such a way that it has impact, that the message rings out. I'm going to say something real quick about idols. This is a hard, hard message to take when you've just eaten well, and it would be good to hang out in a lazy boy with a comforter, with the, the window open just a little bit and a little breeze. But I regress. Listen, idols occupy or compete with the place God wants to have in our lives. Just make it that easy. And what, 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 what is an idol for me may not be an idol for you. But here, here's some that may compete with you know, your genuine love for God. Busyness. Um, I mean, I love being busy. As a matter of fact, the more busy I am, the more productive I think I am. And the more productive I think I am, the more fruitful I think I am. And the more fruitful I am, the more I think I'm advancing the kingdom of God. Am I the only person who thinks this way? You know, if, if I can just multitask and do all this sort of stuff in the name of the Lord, right? Never really asking God, should I be doing this? Sometimes busyness can actually get in the way of worshiping the Lord. Like, Lord, I'd love to worship you and connect with you, but I've got so much to do for your sake. Anyway, busyness might do that. Or, man, I would love to develop a, a devotional life with God, but I'm so stinking busy. You know, I've got the kids and this, like that, and have you noticed that I've been depressed lately? I mean, all these things compete with my time, and since God loves me, he understands. My busyness crowds out my connecting with him. Here's another one. Wealth. Now, God is so into blessing his people. As a matter of fact, wealth comes from him, right? But you know, you know when, when people actually, the sin, uh, one of the sins, this, uh, the deceitfulness of wealth is the idea that when I have enough money, then I can obey God. That's one side. And the other side is when I have enough money, I really don't need to depend on God. Isn't that weird? The deceitfulness of wealth that somehow, someway, how we relate to money will be a reflection of how we actually re relate to God. Our reputation. 
You know, the fear of man is a snare. And sometimes, you know, God wants us to do this, and, oh, man, what will people think if I actually do this? And let, let's bring it down not to some great thing out there, but just bring it in the home. Let's say you and your wife just really get into it. And I'm talking to the guys. And maybe in your brain you're going, mm, she started it. And I just reacted a little snarky. But she was mostly wrong. And let's say you're absolutely objectively correct, right? That in terms of percentages, you know, 20% you, 80% her. And yet this always happens. So you go, hmm. I would love to go to her and say, man, I'm really sorry for being snarky. But she'll take that as license to continue rolling over me and just berating me. And so I'm not going to do that. She'll, she'll think I'm weak. I mean, the guys are going, mm-hmm, yeah. I've got a friend who has that problem. <laughs> anyway, our, what will people think? Our desire to protect our reputation can sometimes compete with doing things God's way. Have you ever noticed that? Here's another one. Um, how we evaluate the success of our Christian walk, even that question may reflect a certain kind of idol. I really think my biggest idol is me. I'm always about, well, am I doing it good enough? Am I worshiping hard enough? Am I praying hard enough? You know, am, am I anointed enough? Now, there's something we, we want to be more effective, we want to grow, but sometimes we, we evaluate our walk with God not in terms of what God's saying about our walk, but how we evaluate ourselves. It's just a, am I the only person? All right. Um, Tied to that is comfort. Now, I really believe that God does provide comfort. You know, sometimes we go through hard seasons. He's so gracious. We just need to relax a bit and chill. And, you know, there's all these sorts of things. But the idea, well, Lord, I, I would, you know, if I say yes to this, my, my life's going to be turned upside down. You know, and that makes it uncomfortable. Forget about whether or not you agree with it. It'll be uncomfortable. It would be, okay, God, I've been... I want to do things your way, but if I started doing things your way, I know I'm going to fail because I'm not used to doing things your way, and I hate that feeling. And then, you know, other people go, oh, you're just not good at things. There's something about, you know, just we want other people not only to see us as doing well, we want to obey God in a way that's comfortable, right? As a matter of fact, many people, Many people think that God would only lead me in a way where I go, yes, why hadn't I thought of that before? <laughs> right? I mean, never mind that, you know, you know we've got to carry our own cross and, you know, loving is always easy, you know? If someone's lovable, pff, easy schmeasy. But when you've got to forgive someone that you're sure is the Antichrist, you know, stuff like that, it's sort of hard. It's uncomfortable. Right? Look, I have a lot of relationships with some really good people, and, and they're, they're good friends and all. And um, I, I really try hard to fulfill the scripture, you know, provoke one another to love and good deeds. So sometimes my way just really ticks people off, and I just let them know look, I'm fulfilling scripture so you can fulfill scripture. 
I am your opportunity to walk in love. And, and I'm good with that. I feel real comfortable with that. Here's another one, bitterness. Unforgiveness is just one of those things that, you know, to, to, it, it's really idolatry. That where we say what someone has done to us is, is, is so important that we're willing to let that define who we are. That, that what someone has done is so painful that we're willing to let that define whether or not we actually follow God. Many of us bend the knee to past offenses. Now, I am not belittling anybody's pain here. But the way to go forward is to do two things. Recognize where you were hurt and you face it. They hurt me. But then the next thing is, God, I choose to forgive them. I choose. Don't ever pray, oh God, help me forgive them. Just do it. Choose to forgive through grit teeth. And then ask God to do this. God, would you forgive me? Now that doesn't seem fair, does it? But if you have to forgive someone, that means you have unforgiveness. Mm. What holds us captive is not what has been done to us. What holds us captive is our natural response to what has been done to us. When we forgive, by the way, when we forgive, we're not saying what people did was okay. We choose to forgive and say, God, would you please forgive me? And then we're free to go forward without letting the past define us. Now, if God is saying, I want you to do this, and you go, but I can't, I'm so stinking wounded, can't you see? I'm not belittling the feelings, but what I'm, bless you, bless you. What, what, a, what a cool way to get a blessing in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> no, but we actually bend the net. God, I know what you want, but my, my bitterness carries more weight with me. Or trying to balance our walk with God with some other religions, maybe other religious practices that God's rescued us from. You know, some of us, you know, we love Jesus, we want to go on with God, but you know, if we really make the break from this thing that doesn't even have Jesus in it, we're going to get people upset with us and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's, I don't know about you, but the worldly mindset says, look, I'm going to collect as many gods as possible. You know, of course, I'll have Jesus in the center, but just in case, as an insurance policy, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll have all these other idols, right? Just, I'll feel happier, feel more secure, and I don't have to put all my eggs into this one basket. So idols, they occupy or compete with the place that God wants us to have in our lives. God gives clear instruction concerning idols. I'll just run th go through these really quick. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, that's pretty unambiguous. He doesn't say, don't have fun, don't enjoy things, don't, don't love other things, right? But no other gods. There's only one God. Only one God. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, um, yeah, John's so cool. Yeah, he, he slashes and burns in 1 John. You know, he, I mean, it's black and white, but then he ends with, dear children. I love it. 
Keep yourself from idols. It's not just turn from idols. Just, just keep. You know, guard your heart in such a way that your heart does not attach itself to pretenders, to the throne. I mean, look, I've got a 16-year-old daughter. She's great, and she's noticing boys. She's noticing them, and oh my gosh, they're noticing her. And there's an excitement, like, because she's, be- she's beautiful inside and outside, and it's a whole new experience for her. And I, you know, I'm not going to stomp on her, but I'm not going to go, oh, whatever you want. Right? So thank God we have these great communications. I go, sweetheart, whatever it is that your heart wants in terms of relationship, God wants, funnel that through your relationship with him. Because if that really cute boy who's got a nice, you know, nice do and a little bling and all that sort of stuff and leading worship, if that guy replaces you, uh, replaces God, it won't work. And she's sort of getting it. She's sort of getting it. Anyway, in Exodus 23, uh, this is in both 24, verse 24 and verse 33, do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. The worship of their gods will be a snare to you. I'm going to sound like one of these religious conservative Bible thumpers just for a little while, but I'm really not. But God's really smart. He goes, you know, when you start playing it fast and loose where you worship God and all that, but you start actually, your heart actually engages in things that God says don't do that, not only will you feel like you're living two lives, but eventually that other thing, it's going to snare you. It'll be like a trap. It'll get you one way or other. Because these false gods, they hold out promises they can never keep. You know how that goes. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, you know, um, uh, Paul's talking about you know, the people of Israel, and he says, <clears throat> you know, the people of God, you've got to learn from what happened with the people of God. God rescued them. They were a rebellious kid, but he lo- kids loved them, gave them a lot of patience, a lot of room for them to change. He's going to lead them into the promised land. But they persisted in three things. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. Now, if I were God, I wouldn't have had the grumbling thing in there. I mean, it doesn't seem, but actually grumbling and complaining, you know, is, if you know you're following God and you're grumbling and complaining, that means you're saying, you know, God, I think I've got better ideas, ideas than you do. So my idea, you, you see how that goes? Grumbling and complaining is something that God goes, you know, that'll keep you in the desert. Actually, if you keep on doing that, it'll keep you from experiencing the promises of God. It won't keep you from the blessings of God because God blessed the people of Israel in the desert. He blessed them, right? But they died in the desert. They died outside the full promises of God. Why? For three, for, for three reasons. Sexual immorality, they grumbled. They kept on grumbling. They wouldn't stop grumbling. And then idolatry. And at the, at the end of that, that portion of Scripture, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Isn't that interesting? God's really clear. He's not angry. My daughter, Tess, bless her heart. She, when she was little, well, she still does it, but when she was little, if you tell her don't do this, 
she just translated that into, I think I'm going to do that. And so we had a stove, an electric stove, and she's there just trying to test, don't touch that, don't touch that. Okay, but then, you know, we'd turn away, and she'd, she'd think that we're not watching, and she'd go and just touch it. And she would think that because she didn't get burned, that I got away with it. There was one day, Becky had just finished making something, and she was doing, well, and Becky and I, were always, we always have to watch Tess. We always have to watch her. And we'd see her go like that, and we'd go, no, no, no. She'd smile. But this one time, they were, they were hot, and she just went, oh, the look in her face. You know, and Oh, we were deeply concerned, but we wanted to go, <laughs> we told you, but there was no anger. There was no, oh, right? It was just, we, we, we loved her. You know, she got some really good burns. She's never touched it since. She's never touched it. Now, she didn't believe that putting her hand on that thing would burn her, even though we told her, look. You do that, it's eventually going to burn you. It will, right? Until it burned her. In exactly the same way, God loves us. He goes, you know, make me your focus. You don't have to be a religious freak. Just, just only one God and make that me. And all these other pretenders, you know, don't embrace them like the thing that's like it's going to really fulfill you, right? Because eventually you'll get burned. Eventually you'll be very disappointed. There's a price to idolatry. And sometimes, yes, we get burned. Um, I'm going to do a, you know, a hyper-prophetic interpretation of a portion of Scripture in 1 Samuel, it's, uh, uh, verses 4 through 5. Um, God, God had given people the ark, which represented the manifest presence of God. And uh, God told them, look, I'm going to give you the land, you're going to take the land. But in their presumption, the people of Israel decided, we're going to go beat up on the Philistines. And we're going to take the presence of God into that, and we know we'll win because God's with us, right? The only problem is God didn't tell them to go pick a, pick a fight. So they did it anyway, and these Philistines, who should have been overrun, they, they stood their ground, punched Israel right in the nose, and then took the ark. Took the ark. The ark, the manifest presence of God. And they took the ark. You know what they did? They took the ark and brought it next to this, this, this idol, Dagon, this big fish god. It's actually, the Philistines, they collected gods. They were really good at collecting gods. But one of their favorites in the collection was Dagon. It's a big fish god. So they put the presence of God right next to their favorite other god. And they go, wow, we have the complete set. <laughs> That's the Philistine mindset. Collect gods. I've got Jesus, I've got wealth, I've got this, and I've got my dark side, I've got it all. That's the Philistine mindset. So, you know, they rejoice, and then they go to bed, and they wake up, and Dagon fought down, go boom. Just went, and the presence of God is just there, and 
Dagon fell down, they go, oh, this is horrible. So they spend a lot of energy resurrecting the, this, the, 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 this fish god. They're, okay, good. Because they had the assumption that the presence of God can coexist with another god. They, sure. So they got, ah, oh, things are back to normal. I get the best of both worlds. Then they wake up the next morning. Dagon fall down, go boom again. <laughs> Only this time, a couple pieces broke off. And they go, oh, let's go get the super glue. You know, they, they repent. How many times have we said, God, I love you, but can I still keep this thing? And it, it coexists for a while, and then it blows up, and you go, oh, I know. I'll, I'll make sure that this thing doesn't blow up again. We resurrect the thing that God's just trying to kill, right? So this happens a few times. And the Philistines, because they're Philistines, they didn't get it. So then what God did is he just, he, he afflicted them with sores or boils. Now there's many different translations, but I'll just tell you the general area where the boil, boils occurred. It was, it was sort of like, like the bottom area. No, the groin and bottom area, right? Now, don't think about what that looks like because you won't be able to un unsee that. But, I mean, they were afflicted with these things. And I remember one time I was reading, I'm going, it was just funny, it just came to me, and go, gosh, if that happened to me, I wouldn't want to do what's necessary to reproduce children. Because, you know, oh, you know, just really, ugh, right? And all of a sudden, I just made the connection. The longer we try to keep God and our idols to mutually coexist, that will infringe our, on our capacity to reproduce. It will actually get in the way of our experiencing the fullness of our part of the Great Commission. So... They're doing all this, and these Philistines are going, what should we do? They have this problem. Following God, nothing's working, Dagon is getting broken up, and the boils. And the Philistine goes, I know. This is how we're going to solve it. Let's get rid of the ark. <coughs> Let's get rid of the ark. So they put it on, on a cart and you know, send it back. That's how the Philistines think. They think they can worship God and their idols, and when things get hot, let's move away from the presence of God. Now, I don't want to diagnose everybody who has this problem, but maybe some of us know what it's like that, gosh, when there's something that we're holding on to, we know that God's really not happy with, something's got to give. And it's either going to be our relationship with God and our relationship with the body. Or the thing. And many people will go, I know God loves me, so I'm going to go with the thing. And they start having less fellowship and their connection with God. It's just an amazing thing. So there, there is a price to pay for knowingly trying to have, have our idols and the Lord Jesus coexist. There's a price. Not only in our personal lives, but in our, abid our ability to, to, to experience our part of the Great Commission. We can't reproduce 
the way we're really designed to. Here's how you get free from idols. It's really simple. See that these things are idols. Just see it. Go, you know, some of these things are good, but they're, they're, they're infringing. See it and then tell God. Hey, God, as they call it confessing. God, I wouldn't have used these words, but now I can. You know, my children, I love them, I want to serve them, but my children are idols. Oh my gosh, I've been worshiping them at the expense of following you so I can learn how to do this wife thing, right? Or I've been worshiping them and their schedule at the expense of, and you know, it's, just, it's, it's an idol. You don't beat yourself up, just call it for what it is. And so you got to see it and then confess it, ask God to forgive you, and then ask God to change it. And then he'll probably give you some marching orders. You know, do this, do that. But it won't be incredibly strenuous. It'll be very simple. The next thing. That's how you deal with idols. And by the way, I just talked about repenting. Going, ah. And sometimes it's a one-off thing. Sometimes it's a process. So, let me give you an example of how this works from Scripture. Um, if you want, you can turn with me to Haggai, it's chapter 1 uh, and chapter 2. I'm going to start verse 1. Uh, this is the power of repentance to change a person's priorities, or in this case, a whole people group's priorities, or even a church. Okay? This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild other translations, it's to restore the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Let me make a comment. The house here can either be a physical house, but from a kingdom perspective, the house is like a family. It's an ongoing family. Like the house of David was not this you know, cute little cottage. The house of David was a family uh, with many generations. And, and God uses the prophet to go, your priority is just a little off. We want to restore the house of God, the family of God, meaning we want to bring, we want to grow the church into the fulfillment of its primary purpose. Okay? And what you're doing is basically saying, let me build my own house, and if I got stuff left over, if I got stuff left over, I'll contribute to the building of the house of the family of God. So it's, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but they're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse that has holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just think about it. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house that I might take pleasure in it and be honored. You expected much but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? 
declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you are busy with your own house. Is there anything wrong with following God in such a way that your life, your family, your own house gets better? Absolutely not. But God is after the priorities here. Watch this. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed. Now think about this. What if God says, you know, I want to give you a blessed house, but you know something? Maybe if your priority was taking who you are and seeing how what you're doing can fit into the advancement of the kingdom. Or, you know, your gifts, talents, and abilities, how can you be part of the church family in, in such a way that who God made you to be can actually help the house, your church family, uh, experience its mandate? You know, think about it. How many times do you just pour so much into your own life, you don't get the expected results? God's saying, if you just change your priorities, watch what happens. They just obeyed. They didn't go, oh God, that's a great idea. Hmm. Sublime. Yes, I get it. I agree with that. You know, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ta- take that up in prayer. If you know God has talked about your priorities, say, hey, man, why don't you just switch things? You're, the things that you think are an excuse, they're really idols and all that. And you go, yes, I know. right? And then you go, well, let me pray about that. Who are you going to talk to? <laughs> Beware the second opinion. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, yeah, wait, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the People feared the Lord. They loved God. They worshiped God. And they went, hmm. We're used to living this way, but God said, ah, let's start, let's start rearranging things. I get it. And they just obeyed. Now, they did, they've been doing this for so long, they probably didn't know how to obey. They didn't know how to do it right. But they got the train out of the station. They just started making some adjustments. And then Zerubbabel... And the whole room, they obeyed. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you. Think about that. I know that if I was God, and I, let's say I'm talking to this church, hey guys, you're wonderful, you have really great lives, God's rebuilding a whole bunch of things, but mm, why don't you just up your game and see how who you are, what you're doing, can contribute and be part of the overall thing. Not only will this church family advance the kingdom of God in the way that I've planned, but your life will actually become more fruitful, right? And you go, great, I agree. I have no idea how to do it, but I agree, and I'm going to start taking steps. I know if I were God, I would have said, okay, let's see how good you do before I smile at you. But just that repentance, just that choice, they went, mm, you're right. Mm, this is going to be hard, but your way is right. I repent, I'm going to obey, I'm going to take steps. And then God says, I'm with you. I'm not pulling back. As a matter of fact, just because you see it and you've repented and you obeyed, you're going to start taking some steps, 
I am with you. That's great encouragement. That, and actually, it's miraculous. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Shealtiel governor of, the Judah, of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. And then a little further down it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Almighty. The silver's mine, the gold's mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. The simple power of a prophetic word that challenges us to realign brought brought these whole people to a place of they're aligned with God, and God says, whatever you think you had before, mm, it's going to be much better in the future. Just do things my way. This is a wonderful illustration that if we actually seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, then everything we need will be added to us. Isn't that amazing? The power of simple repentance brought by a prophetic word is not just for us, but for our spheres of influence, our part of the Great Commission. Here, I'm, I'm going to end with a, another scripture and go through it really quick just so you see how powerful it is. And when God says your priorities need to be adjusted, he's not saying you're bad. He's not saying, gosh, I wish I hadn't died for you. He, he knows that if we'll just listen to him, take steps, he'll be with us, he'll help us, not only will we have better lives, but our influence will, will be increased. You brought it up yesterday, just so you feel good about yourself. Yeah. I live to make you happy. If my people who are called by my name will do these things, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Think about that. Let's go over it again really quick. My people, that would be us. If we would humble ourselves, to me, the way to humble yourself is not beating yourself up and go, I'm just a worm. For me, when I humble myself, I, I hold my opinions and my experiences lightly. Many of us base our, our idea of what we should do, what our future is, based on our experience and our, and our opinions, the ones that are sincerely held. I think humility requires that you go, okay. I have these experiences, and I have these thoughts, but I'm going to hold them lightly. Maybe God's got a better way. That, I think that's real humility. Okay? And then if they'll pray, not get the conversation going. If you haven't been talking to God on a regular basis, well, start talking to him. So what if people go, oh, there's that weird person talking out loud to nobody that no one can see. Just get the conversation going. Develop the lifestyle of just talking to God. And, and don't just talk to God so that to have the conversation. If you'll seek his face, and the word there is pineal, and it actually means my, the presence of God. We don't talk to God just so we exchange information. We talk to God so we can connect with his presence. You know, we're 
Have you ever just... My wife and I do this often. Sometimes we don't really squabble, but sometimes we're a million miles away from each other and we're just sitting on the same couch. And usually it's, of course it's my fault because I'm Jewish. It's always our fault. <laughs> now I'll just go, honey, I'm really sorry. And she goes, yeah, I forgive you. I'm sorry too. Okay. We haven't moved, but all of a sudden we're close. Now the point of the conversation was not just to exchange information. The result of it is the sense of her presence. She's right there. She's not a million miles away. And then, when you have the sense of God's presence, repentance is easy. I love you so much. You want me to change that? Sure. So if my people humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their ways, God says, I will hear from heaven. Have you ever had people that you talk to, like, they hear what you're saying, but they're really not hearing it, they're really not getting it? There's something different when you know someone's locked in and they're really listening is the word I'm after. And I'll forgive their sin. God will always forgive our sin. Always, always, always. Do it his way, he'll forgive you. But notice the result. I will heal their land. How much do you care about this city? I'm I'm not being mean. I'm just being from New Jersey. And I'm American, so we have no people skills. How much do you care about this city? Because remember, this church exists in a broken, idolatrous context. How much? How much? How much do you want to experience your part of the Great Commission? There's a whole bunch of things you can do. Might work, might not. But there's one thing you can do that will always work. Just double down on your personal relationship with the real Jesus. Let him just, little by little, reestablish your priorities, right? And he'll start healing your sphere of influence. He'll start healing your family. He'll start healing your community. He'll start doing it. How does he do it? Sometimes, no clue. Sometimes he might even use you. Now, I say all that just to get to this thing. With Haggai, all that great transformation started with one prophetic word. Hey, your priorities. Why don't you you just readjust? Seek first the kingdom of God. Take what you're doing and see how you can connect up with what your church family is doing. Connect up in a more vital way and your house, your life will get better and you will experience the Great Commission. And it was all started with the word that produced an opportunity to repent. A lot of the words that Greg and I give, you know, we love you, Jesus loves you, and all that sort of stuff. And we hardly ever say, you know, repent. But many of you, we know what's going on. You're going, oh, you're talking about that. And if I say yes, amen, but if I say yes to that, I'm going to have to change that. Oh, God, you're so nice. You didn't embarrass me, right? Because God's not into embarrassing. But the word is designed to bring out a change so we can experience everything that God has for us, and we could be even more effective in healing our land. Does that make sense? So let's appreciate the full purposes of prophecy. It's to help us change how we think, how we live, transform us so that we can enjoy life a little better and 
impact the people around us. Easy schmeasy. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you that you speak to us to love us, to bless us, to heal us and all that, but you also equip us. It's just an amazing thing. And God, you know, when, you hardly ever shame us to change. Um, God, I thank you for this church, for its heart to go forward. This heart really does. Now, this church really does have the heart to be known as a Thessalonican church. That this is not just the cool place. This is not the place where you just have great sense of family and the presence of God. This is a place where, where the, the word of God, the reality of God will ring out. And that there will be a reputation. Not that this is simply a cool place, because it is a very cool place. But this is a place where these people actually believe in a living God. God, I ask for each of us, each of us, not just them, but them. God, if there's some things that you want to realign and readjust, help us just see it. And then confess it, surrender it, and help us take the next step. Because God, if we'll do that, our life will get better, and you'll heal our land. Amen. Something that um, Ben pointed us to with regard to Haggai you know, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, repentance comes to cause us to mirror heaven. And how does God cause us to mirror heaven? It's through this, this concept that Ben is teaching on repentance. And one key phrase here in chapter 1, verse 14, says, the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel. Repentance has to begin in our spirit, like Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. So I can give you words, but the words would just go to your mind. I can give you emotion. It just goes to your emotion. But if the spirit of repentance is there, it quickens something in your spirit. And that's where the spirit of grace comes, and that's where change comes. So a prophetic word comes to us, and yes, it goes through our understanding, but it touches our spirit. And that's where God begins to move in us and causes us to shift out of our idolatrous ways into godly ways. And so the power of prophecy is that God is using a human voice to speak to us his very life. It's not just flesh speaking to us, it's the spirit that's speaking to us. And this is one of the things I've been trying to get us to understand as a congregation. When the Holy Spirit is moving, we need to be aware and cognizant the Holy Spirit is moving because that's where life is. right? We can go to a sports event, we have amazing energy in the stadium, but that's not the Spirit of God. That's just human energy. But if God is moving in the service, we as a church should have antennas to know God is here, we need to capitalize on this moment, and we need to be moving with Him. So when the Spirit of repentance comes, it can change one person, it can change a church, it can change a whole city, but it's that divine ripple, the Spirit of God coming to touch us, to touch a community, to touch the world, like Ben was saying.